Mississippi was one of the most powerful states in the Union when it seceded and joined the Confederacy. Over the next 16 years, devastating military campaigns, revolutionary emancipation, long-term army occupation, and groundbreaking legislation redefined the state and the nation. The Civil War and Reconstruction Governors of Mississippi is a digital history project that provides free online access to the state's governor's papers, about 20,000 documents, from just before the Civil War through the era of Reconstruction and into the New South. Welcome to Episode 1 of a five-part series detailing this major endeavor. Funding for this program was made possible by the Dale Center for the Study of War and Society at the University of Southern Mississippi. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this episode. You know, it's different for me to come in here and give you a little bit of an intro, but this is a pretty special episode, and I want to explain to you why that is. Usually we run the entire live stream presentation in full. I rip the audio from the video, I make a couple changes, add a couple things, and we have a finished product. But last week's episode was a little bit different. We had some technical issues, uh, and some things just weren't working right. But then we were saved basically, by this amazing interpretive experience with Ranger Barney Scobie. And it was just amazing. Barney is from the Natchez National Historical Park. He is widely known for his interpretation, and we found out why. And so what I'm doing for this particular podcast, because we didn't do much before we let Barney roll and let and do his thing. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to start you out at the beginning of Barney's interpretation as he leads us through the existence, the life, if you will, of a USCT soldier during the American Civil War. This all focuses in on descent and memory of the Civil War in Mississippi. So it's all under that umbrella, if you will. But this interpretation is some of the best that I've ever heard in 25 years of doing interpretation. And I think for you to really grasp it, you need to hear it in full from beginning to end. So this particular podcast won't be like the other weeks because of those technical issues and really the majority of the presentation was Barney Scobie's presentation. So I want to highlight that this week. And I think you're going to really enjoy it. You're going to hear his passion for the subject matter. You're going to hear his interpretation of the USCT experience, primary sources, and you'll just hear the passion in his voice when he steps up to the microphone and steals the show. So ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, here's episode four of our five-part series. And this one is just going to be amazing because Barney Scobie is going to steal the show. If you're new to the podcast or new new to this live stream, um, the Civil War and Reconstruction Governors of Mississippi Project 
we're working with the Mississippi State Archives. This is uh, the Mississippi Department of Archives and History, the Mississippi Digital Library, and a team of historians at the University of Southern Mississippi to digitize, transcribe, and annotate all of the governor's papers for the state from 1859, so that's the start of Pettus's administration, all the way through the Civil War and Reconstruction, and we get a little bit into the New South, ending in 1882. And the reason we're doing this is what John was just hinting at. In the 19th century, just about everybody wrote to their governor if they had a complaint about everything. Rarely are they praising the governor, but it's, it's usually an appeal for help, um, a complaint, a frustration, a concern. Sometimes they're volunteering some of their assistance. Um, and so it becomes this great way to look at how everyday people, the people we don't often get to hear from, as historians, how they experience the revolutionary, revolutionary changes of the Civil War and Reconstruction. So we've kind of broken this collection. John, I'm sure you've already put that link um, in, or, or you might if you haven't, but you know, we've broken out some sample documents from the collection just to give you a sense of what you might find. And John's sharing the link for that. Mm -hmm. If you ever kind of can't find the link, just, just go to cwrgm.org, click on sample documents and you'll get there too. Mm -hmm. um, and one of the themes that we that we're looking at in the collection of these sample documents is this is this theme of memory and commemoration and how the Civil War is remembered today that's really kind of different from the stories that we're seeing emerge in the documents. And that's that's the focus for tonight. The one thing that we are starting to see with uh, some of these uh, issues with these documents is that in the reconstruction era we're starting to see this historical memory taking shape and how persons are seen based on uh you know what their experiences were but also trying to come to terms with what has transpired right because this is when you start to see like the lost cause narrative start to take hold and some other issues and this really affects us and uh like we, we're still arguing some of these issues uh, today. What are some of the documents that you've uncovered which really point to coping and thinking about uh, what transpired over a series of years? Uh, the four-year struggle, perhaps. Maybe they're even into like 1863 and are already trying to come to grips with it or come to grips with the idea that maybe the county over, their friend, has has gone a different direction than they have. Yeah, I mean, I think some of the docs, and, and Steph can speak to this too, because uh, she's been doing so much great background research on the people in them, but I think what you start to see by the middle of the war are these examples of dissent that we've that we've been hinting at in some of the previous episodes, where people, and you see this in all wars, you know, as, as the war drags on, as forces on both sides are confiscating your food, your crops, your, your livestock, um, as conscription laws get passed that you may completely disagree with, you start to see, you know, this dissent um, from the white population. You also start to see dissent from the enslaved population as they start to seize the opportunity um, to escape to federal lines now that, you know, as word quickly spreads that they will not be returned to enslavement. Mm -hmm. So, but I, one of the things I want to point out is that there are, there are many forms of dissent um, and that the, the folks we're going to be talking about today are the ones who really kind of take that to the next level. And they're not just frustrated with the Confederate government. They, and that's, again, this is, this is fairly common. I mean, it's, it's almost kind of in the kind of the American DNA, if you will. 
Um, but this is this is going beyond that. And now they're going to be taking up arms um, to fight for the federal cause. Um, and this this is this is a whole different experience um, that we're looking at. Mm -hmm. Um, one of the interesting things that I found going through um, the documents and also reading Susanna's phenomenal essays that she wrote that are on our sample document site, um, just to plug that right there. Um, but <laughs> I'm a shameless digital historian. I always got a sample doc website, right? Yeah. Um, but anyway, going through and seeing how many people, um, especially in the post-war era, especially if they were unionists, they wanted some recognition mm -hmm. for that. Um, they wanted, you know, because I think they they either knew that, you know, this narrative of, you know, the, the old South was kind of perpetuating in the Reconstruction era. And um, there's a man named James H. Pierce, who I'm not going to lie, I'm obsessed with. Um, I love his letter that we have in CWRGM. Um, he writes Governor Sharkey. He's a native of Kentucky. Um, he lives in Mississippi during the Civil War. Um, he marries a Yankee woman whose name is Elizabeth Abernathy. They're from Columbus, Mississippi. Um, she had moved right before the Civil War um, to become a teacher in Columbus. And she was actually, as soon as the Civil War broke out, she was removed from her position because of her views, um, because she obviously was anti-Confederate. Um, but he talks about how he avoided the draft. He did absolutely everything that he could um, to make sure that he wasn't going to give any service to the Confederate Army. Um, he does actually join the Union Army at one point, and he is he was an ardent Unionist throughout the war. And he writes Governor Sharkey, and he wants recognition for that, that he he never, and he even says that he became obnoxious to his community for his unionist police. I always love that. That's a revolutionary thing, too, that I see in my documents all the time, where I became obnoxious. Um, and so he wants people to understand that he was there from the beginning, and he wants the governor to recognize that. And even at the end of his letter says, you know, maybe you should appoint some of us old unionists, you know, to political positions. If you want to show that the tide has really turned in Mississippi, I would love to volunteer for some kind of political service. So he's he's just a phenomenal figure in this collection. And, you know, if you're if you're interested in some really fascinating unionists, go take a look at James H. Pierce. Yeah. Barney, are you got, are you able to hear us now? I'd love to have you chime in from kind of your perspective also on unionists. Um, that yes, you I can, yes, I can hear you. I, if I'm not if I'm not mistaken, you guys were touching on the unionist perspective during the um, Civil War and somewhat of the 1863 campaign. And um, as you know, Natchez was somewhat of a sympathetic towards the union unionist um, mm -hmm. scenario. Um, we were in an environment in Mississippi where we had 500 uh, Mississippi soldiers to fight for the Union Army. We had 17,000 USCT soldiers to fight for the Union Army. So that transition, once that transition took place in the um, summer of 1863, and as you said before, and to piggyback off what you said, there was a large exodus of slaves enlisting, leaving the plantations. Um, leaving the institution of slavery, wanting a better life, uh, leaving the atrocities and horrific treatments of having families separated and also wanting to put themselves in a situation where they would literally be able to fight for their freedom. So as a result of that, you see slaves leaving plantations from all areas of the Natchez arena and uh, one, one exodus and one escape sticks with us quite fondly here in Natchez is it is the escape of uh, Wilson Brown, uh, the Medal of Honor winner. Mm. Um, United States Navy, uh, Wilson Brown, 
they had slaves enlisting all over the um, proximity of Natchez and they would record them and the union uh, clerk would give you the gist of where they enlisted at. Um, specific mm -hmm. plantations would be named, enlisted at Taconi, enlisted at Fair Oaks, enlisted at this plantation. Well, Wilson Brown's enlistments papers were somewhat um, a, a sway from the norm because Wilson Brown escaped from slavery and as the USS Harford was sailing down the Mississippi River, Wilson Brown jumped into the river, swam out to the ship, and said he's reporting for duty. So, so therefore, his enlistment's paper said the middle of the Mississippi River. <laughs> wow. I love it. Wow. The power of primary sources right there. <laughs> Fantastic. That's amazing. That's amazing. And and that's that's something that we touched on previously, right? Where, now, um, where, oh, go ahead, Barney. Please, I would go. love to touch more. I'm sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead, Barney, please. Keep going. Keep rolling. <laughs> this is awesome. Well, I, I'm if if I was, I'm, like I say, you guys, your, your feedback is somewhat of a delay. Yeah. So it feels as though I'm interrupting you. So if I continue to apologize, that's <laughs> no. just the Southern Baptist boy in me. I'm sorry. <laughs> the USCT experience is one like no other. And it captivates the soul, especially as an African-American man. Hmm. You really not only feel the story in your own little way, you, in your own state of mind, you start to live it. It, it becomes a part of your subconscious and your psyche. Um, we, when, I do my, when I do my programs, when I do my programs with the Adams County School District and other school districts, as you know, it's very difficult to maintain the attention of an age group from six to 16 years of age with all of these um, technical devices at hand. So I try the very first thing I do I, in my presentations, I try to touch on infancies that would be a mind catcher, something that shocks the mind to make you say, mm. mm hmm. That way you must immediately get their attention if you plan to get the point across of what a USCT soldier was. And as I have participated in these programs, I found great joy in the input that I've received from not only school board members, teachers, but parents. Uh, nothing is more gratifying to hear a kid come home and a parent tell me while I'm in Walmart, man, my, my kid really got a kick out of you. USCT soldier's story. And as a result of that, it, it gives you not only a sense of work, but self-esteem to know that you're really giving back to your ancestral heritage. The USCT soldier, I always start when I go in that school. When I go in that classroom, I always say, from whence they came. From whence they came. You see, the story of the USCT soldiers is, is none like no other. From whence the USCT soldier came to understand that what made him a soldier, he had to have walked 444 miles down the Natchez Trace in a coffle. He had to have survived the journey and the true, the true trail of tears of the exodus of the slaves that were en route in the slave trade that would be a part of what would Mississippi's economy would depend upon. Cotton was king. And as my daddy always say, 
Son, cotton don't pick itself. So as a result of that, from whence that he came, from whence that he came. This is an excerpt in 1844 of a traveler coming out of North Carolina. And every time I read this, I picture in my mind the journey of that slave, destination Natchez, forks of the road, the first leg of his journey that will end, begin and end in turmoil, chaos, brutality, and sometimes murder. This excerpt is from 1844, and I quote, a single spectacle, the most striking one of the kind I have ever witnessed. It was a camp of Negro slave drivers just packing up to start. They had about 300 slaves with them. They had proceeded the night in chains in the woods. These that were conducted to Natchez. The female slaves, some of them sitting on logs of woods, whilst others were standing and a great many little black children were warming themselves by the fire. And to make this spectacle more disgusting, hideous, some of the principal white slave owners, well-dressed and had broad brim hats with crepes wrapped around them, stood there laughing and smoking cigars mm -hmm. from whence they came. Mm -hmm. Now, you're going to take a 444-mile journey through the annals of history. Your destination, if you survive this journey of poor and rancid food, no rest, no relaxation, only cruelty, hard punishment, and continuous moving until you reach that destination called Natchez. The Forks of the Rose is your destination. That destination, once you make it to that Forks of the Road, now that slave, now that slave, has entered into a realm of the next phase of the calamity that he will face or she will face in their lives. The Forks of the Road was described by Joseph Holt Ingram. Joseph Holt Ingram was a professor at Jefferson College. He was a clergyman from Maine. He explained what the forks in the road look like, giving us a vivid description from whence that journey has started. The 444-mile march, the true trail of tears, the insanity, the brutality, and the inhumanity has now brought you to Natchez. You've made it. You've made it. Now the next phase of this journey is that of the Forks of the Road, the second largest slave market in the South. Joseph Holt Ingram, 1830. A mile from Natchez, we came to a cluster of rough wooden buildings in an angle of two roads in front of which several horses 
either tied or held by a servant, indicating a place of popular resort. A line of Negroes commits to the entrance. In the entrance, the tallest was maybe five foot eight, five foot nine, all the way down to a little fellow of 10 years of age. They extended in a semicircle waiting to be inspected. Now you've arrived from whence you've came. This is the next stage of your journey. That next stage is the forks of the road. Now that you have made it to the second largest slave market in America, you must now be sold. You must now be sold. You must be separated from your mother. You must be removed from anything that has any familiarity with the infrastructure of family. You will be snatched kicking and screaming from your wife's arms. You will never see your children again. You have arrived to the folks of the road, your next destination. From whence you came. Now it's time to be sold. You have made the arduous journey of 444 miles of pure hell. We have survived the rancid food, the inhumane treatment, the brutality, the beatings and the murder. You've made it to the forks of the road. You're put into a semicircle with the biggest man being no more five foot eight, five foot nine, and in the middle, a 10 year old boy. Now it's time to be sold. Who do they want? What are they looking for? The institution of slavery is to do one thing and one thing only to enlarge a slave owner's territory. To live from sunup to sundown in misery, turmoil, and agony. To live a short life only to be worked to death if not to be claimed by disease. Your children will eat from a trough. You're a slave. Who do they want? Well, the market is clear. We're advertising blacksmiths. We're advertising draymen. We're advertising seamstress. We're advertising cotton pickers, field hands, cane choppers. What do you want? to be inspected to be greased and well-dressed in the Irishman vest, to be paraded, to be sold. But there's one that they don't want. There's one that they don't want. And that one that they don't want 
from the inspection of a slave by the name of Henry Watson. This is the slave they don't want. From whence they came. The slave that they don't want, Henry Watson, was sold at the forks of the road. But Henry stuck around a while. Henry wasn't really one that they wanted. You see, Henry says, by the most rigorous examination of slaves, by those slave inspectors, the one least desired is the one who possessed any kind of intelligence. For this is the mental inspection of a slave. He is pronounced the most objectable of all other qualities connected with the life of a slave. Hence, they are very careful to inquire whether a slave can read or write. This question has been asked to me often by slave traders and cotton planters while I was there at the market. After conversing with me, they swore by their maker. They swore by their maker they would not have me amongst their Negroes. And they saw the devil in my eyes. For I would run. I would run. They didn't want an intelligent slave. They didn't want the intellect to know that freedom is a God-given right. You can't give anybody freedom. You're born with it. To keep them ignorant is to control. Mm. I don't want intellect amongst my Negroes. Knowledge is power and it spreads like a germ. But you know, there's a rumble in the air. There's a, there's a rumble in the air and, and slaves are hearing things. They're, they're hearing the whispers of freedom. They've survived the arduous task of 444 miles. They have made it to the destination of the horrific inhumane terroristic treatments, the separation of family, the brutality of a slave market. They are now in an environment where everything that consists of what makes them anything consists of what that slave owner will give them. You are not a person. There's a whisper in there. You don't think they heard about 1836? 
Nat Turner was a prophet, they said. Said God told him to do it. John Brown was a prophet, they said. Said God told him to do it. There's a whisper in the air. And that whisper is war now. You see, July 14th, 1863, Natchez, Mississippi has an epiphany. The 14th Wisconsin, the 14th Wisconsin under Ransom's Brigade has participated in the capture of Natchez in the remaining place until October when the regiment returns to Vicksburg. It's in the air. Freedom's in there. Union soldiers on the move. The cannons are being fired in Vicksburg. There's a little battle we're going to talk about in a little bit, but right now, I want to talk about what happened in Natchez. Because I think, Doc, you wanted me to touch on all of those heroic men that served not only in all of the campaigns in the USCT infantry, but those Mississippi soldiers that changed a nation mm -hmm fighting for a new constitution because the old one was not working. Yep. I no longer want to be a slave. Will you fight? Will you fight? Well, the Swain Papers in the National Sentinel talks about the USCT experience and how they ran from plantations, and how Wilson Brown enlisted in the middle of the Mississippi River, and how we got 17,000 USCT fighting machines and campaigns all over the state of Mississippi. But down here in Natchez, they describe the foundation of the new USCT soldier. Freedom's in the air. Will you fight? You will sleep and camp in uncomfortable quarters. Will you fight? Sign me up. You will eat the same rancid food that is not much better than the plantation. Will you fight? Sign me up. You will receive less pay than your white counterparts, but you will be expected to fight even harder. Will you fight? Sign me up. Who had more to lose? Who had more to lose? There is no tomorrow. I win or I die. As my family has been removed from my life. My new family becomes my comrade in arms. Fighting for those new amendments yet to come. Fighting for the freedom to be a man. Fighting for full citizenship, the right for the protective of his vote and the elimination of slavery forever. They described it. The Union Army described them. 
It said for a couple of weeks, we were drilling in process considering these men were fresh off the cotton field plantations. Many of them have never had a gun in their hand. Ignorant, dirt to grind, and forever denied any of the rights or qualities of manhood. The improvement was apparent to the most casual observer. The moment he put that uniform on, they said he became erect, self-reliant, and proud consciousness was newly acquired. I get to shoot my oppressors. Sign me up. Will he fight? Will he fight? Well, the first one comes. And the test has been placed on the sixth heavy artillery. You see, they were sent out on a scourging, a foraging campaign. And as we've already established, these soldiers, these USCT soldiers, some are fresh off the plantation, has not had a chance to be drilled properly, does not know the working mechanisms of a 58 caliber Springfield with a 40 inch barrel. They're literally learning as they go and running off courage. Pure, unbridled, enthusiastic, USCT, I want to be free and I will shoot my oppressor courage. Well, it's about to go down. It's about to go down and the test is elevated. Six, on the foraging campaign. Captain Hitchcock, Confederate, it's over in the Louisiana area. The six in this foraging campaign has stopped for orders as they followed forward. It said Captain Hitchcock, not knowing the strength of his opposers, fell back a short distance. And then the attack. It is then the USCT-6 jumps into action. Colonel Smith takes the guard forward to the road after marching more than a mile, ordered a halt throughout a picket to fall. The enemy became the very few moments before a volley was heard. And then another volley was heard. And still another one. And he immediately double quick back his men back arriving. Too late to participate in the engagement. But it was seen then that Sashes captain ordered Hitchcock to surrender. Firing at the same time the revolver at Corporal Thomas Silly, who dropped unhurt at his knees and sent the ball to the miscreant breast, which proved fatal. It was rather hard for Southern chivalry to be cleaned out by an equal number of Negroes. Will you fight? I got nothing to lose. If I lose, I die. There are no quarters for me. There is no hostage negotiation for me. Four pillars a year away. Four pillars a year away. The insanities and the brutalities of slavery really groomed the USCT soldier 
to understand that there is no tomorrow. I would rather die in my grave to live another day as a slave. It goes back to the old civil rights song. When they moved from the nonviolent perspective in late 68 to the black power symbolism of violence. And they sung a song. And I think about that USCT soldier once he made up his mind, it's freedom or death. They sang a song. And that civil rights song, it says, Freedom got a shotgun. Freedom got a shotgun. Freedom gonna shoot it. Boom, boom, boom. Freedom gonna shoot it. Boom, boom, boom. Freedom got a shotgun. Freedom got a shotgun. Freedom gonna shoot it. Boom, boom, boom. Freedom gonna shoot it. Boom, boom, boom. There is no tomorrow. I win or I Die. Let's talk about what made them the USCT fighting machine that cemented their historical stance, their ability to fight their oppressors, never to turn and run from those that oppressed, maimed, killed, beaten, separated them. You want to fight? Let's fight. It's June 7th. We are by Vicksburg now. And we got ourselves a 58 caliber 1863 Springfield Equalizer with a 40 inch back. It's time to go to war. It's time to cement our place in history as a USCT fighting machine of men, no longer slaves. You'll never take my child again from me. You'll never take my woman from me again. I'm going to die old and happy with my family. I'm going to die young and brave on this ground. But either way it go, I'm fighting. Dawn is coming. Dawn is coming. You see, right across the river over in Louisiana, you got Walker's Texas Division marching to try to rescue Vicksburg. The Anaconda plan is in place. Total stranglehold. Nothing in, nothing out. Rivers in deadlock. Starvation. Pets are not even safe in the, in the River City in Vicksburg. You got Walker's Division coming over there from Louisiana. And you got the USCT soldiers giving the task to make sure Walker's division don't cross that river. It's USCT time to shine. It's June 7th. 
1863. You see, Milliken Bills consisted of the 13th and the 11th USCT Infantry and 120 of the 23rd Iowa Infantry. We got ourselves a fight. Walker's Texas Division is right across the river. USCT's job, don't let him cross that river. He ain't getting across the Mississippi. Not today. The 11th, the 13th, 120 men of the 23rd. It's time to go to war. It is dawn. It has begun. As the fighting started at dawn, the Federal opposed that morning bigger General Henry E. McCullough in charge of the Walker, Texas Division. The 16th Texas Infantry and the 16th Texas Cavalry, they're on the move, they're on the march. Attack dawn, at dawn the attack comes, when at dawn that attack comes, the USCT soldiers stand valiantly, they stand tall. It's ready to lock, load, and aim. But then again, you must realize, these individuals that are operating these mechanized guns have only been off that plantation maybe a month or less. They don't know how this thing works. And it says in the battle before they could get off more than two shots, the lines collapsed. Now we're bagging back, but we're still fighting. Now we are fighting. It is hand to hand. It is bloody. There is no surrender, no retreat. You must Hold your ground. USCT soldier, Walker's Texas Division advances again. Second advance, USCT falls back again. But at this time, there is no cop, no percussion, no powder, no ram load, no load. What are we doing now? Now we go to school. USCT soldier from whence he came. He came from slavery. He came from hard labor. He came from sun up to sun down, from can to can't. What has become his possession now? That slave that they didn't want, them ones with the intellect. And intellect finna kick in now. Why? Simple, because now I don't need this gun to lock, load, aim, and fire. I don't need it to do that now. Now it's a tool. What have I done my whole life as a slave? I've shoveled. I've pickaxed, I've bailed, I've hoed, I've raped. Now that 18-inch bayonet becomes a tool. Walker, Texas Division, you in trouble. They halt that second advance. And when that second advance is halted by the USCT soldier, then comes the rain. Then comes the rain. And I'm not talking about the rain of God's holy water that is spread upon the land that will wet that ground with freedom. I'm talking about fire from the Choctaw and the Lexington. Fellas, we got rain. They making it rain. And as they make it rain, the gunfire from the Choctaw, the gunfire from the Lexington feels the field. Walker is in retreat. Walker's down. USCT soldiers advance, hold the field and command the day, cementing, cementing that day. The ultimate compliment, ultimate compliment, even the Confederates said, 
They fought like hell. I ain't got nothing to lose. USCT, straight fighting machine from the battlefields of the 54th to the skirmishes in Natchez to all those that massacred at Pillow, the valiant charge at Wagner, to on that day in June 7 when the Walker Texas Division never crossed the Mississippi River. There was never a question about will you fight. Now the USCT soldiers story, like I said, it is one like no other. Because as it is one like no other, you think about the atrocities of their oppressors. You think about from whence they came. You think about the inhumanities of systemic racism and white supremacy. You think of them fighting against the inhumanities of second-class citizenship, shedding their blood to be equal. Even after 1866, when the USCT soldiers were disbanded, they went on to have distinguished military careers, but even their emancipators sometimes used the evil eyes of racism to eliminate the black soldier from full prosperity as a soldier. You know, you think about the 21 members of the 49th USCT charged with mutiny only because they had food, spoiled meat, rotten bread, and mutilated candles. They protested. That protest led to mutiny. 21 of these soldiers who had fought for their freedom from whence they came from the 44, 444 trek of tears to be charged with mutiny, dishonorably discharged and to hang. Or you think about the aspect of leadership and knowledge, preparing these new leaders with the scholastic aptitude that would be need to lead a new nation, as DuBose said, with their talented tent, only to never be able to lead a USCT squadron or brigade, only to be led by white officers, even to return in 1864 to tear down and demolish the slave quarters that held them the same blood, anguish, sweat, and tears in that wood is now housing white officers. Your emancipators. Only to fight in the horrific war between the states to eliminate the institution of slavery. 
to only have, to have our first our first commissioned United States officer, Henry Ryan O'Shan Flipper, class of 1877 West Point, given his first command of the 10th Cavalry Buffalo Soldiers, the first commissioned officer, the first commissioned officer. But as his first commissioned officer, he is court-martialed for a derelict of duty, dishonorably discharged and removed from service. This is the first commission officer, the very co first commission officer. It is not till his family fought in 1991. Because see, Henry O'Shan Flipper died in 1940, but he retired working under the assistant of the United States Department Secretary of Interior. This man still served his country as an assistant to the Secretary of Interior after being dishonorably discharged only for the color of his skin. Our first officer. It wasn't until 1999 when Bill Clinton, 118 years later, gave Henry O'San Flipper a full pardon and restored him into his military rank. Now, as I conclude, I always like to give a face to my kids because oh, they love the gun too. They love the gun, they love the gun. What can I say, we're in Mississippi. We love guns, I'm sorry. But um, I try to give it a face. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Josh Gordon, a man, a USCT fighting machine, a Fort Millikins, a, a, a member of the 11th Louisiana Infantry, Battle of Millikin Bend hero, ran away at 15 years of age and joined the Union Army as an honorable man to die in Greenville, Mississippi in 1900. A man. This picture, if only eyes could talk. Now, as I have concluded, we have touched upon the indignities. We have touched upon the sacrifice. And we have touched upon the accolades. But we still have work to do. The African-American soldier has shown patriotism like no other. From the Revolutionary War, the massacre starts with a man by the name of Christmas Adams, black man. To the Civil War, the USCT soldiers fighting machines. To the Spanish-American War with those rough riders who soon become Buffalo soldiers charging San Juan Hill. World War I, when them doughboys had a couple of people called Harlem Hellfighters. The French requested them. The World War II, when them guys called Tuskegee Airmen with them red tails. They were not only assigned, they were requested. 
only to fight for a constitution. All they wanted from the return was that constitution to fight for them. Hmm. Ladies and gentlemen, I want to thank you. And it's been a blast. God bless you. God keep you. Barney, that was incredible. Amazing. Now, I don't know if I want to go to war or go to church now. Like, yeah, that's no. <laughs> yeah. 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 Okay. It's this right there showcases one, the power of Barney as an interpreter. Holy moly. The power that you can have as an interpreter from primary sources, like we've been discussing for weeks now, and we will continue to discuss. And just how impactful the message can be to anyone who cares to listen and many people need to listen <laughs> you know and i and i think that is such a powerful uh presentation i've done interp for 25 years barney is at the head of my list yep. I yeah, told you. everybody raves about him mr scoby i just i gotta thank you um I, one of the things we wanted to convey tonight to people, it's really two things. One, the, the experiences and the story of the USCTs that, that, that just have been lost. And number two, how people in the park service like yourself are doing such a good job of getting those stories out to the public. So the public can start to think about this and really wrestle with this so that it does become part of civil war memory again. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm also smart enough to not talk too much after you because I'm just going to look bad. That was fantastic. Uh, yeah, I'm the same way. I'm the same way. I'm just like, I'm ready to wrap it because I can't top it. I, I, that was phenomenal. Like, I, I got a message from my husband in the middle of that, and he's like, we need to go to Natchez and listen to Barney again. Everybody needs yeah. to go to Natchez. And, and by the way, yeah. I just got to say, the folks at um, Natchez National Historical Park, when I, when I called over there because I told them I'd heard amazing things about Mr. Barney Scobie, um, you know, nobody has time right now for anything. We're all exhausted and they jumped, you know, Kathleen Bond jumped in, David Slay's been helping tonight, you know, the historical staff, everybody, um, but especially you, Mr. Scobie, thank you. Um, we got to have you back. This is great. I'm going to drive from Pennsylvania just to shake his hand. <laughs> that I'm was, telling you. Yeah. I'm telling and you. I know, and I know there's a sound delay, so he's hearing all yeah, of he's this hearing it. six yeah, seconds, yeah, yeah, yeah. seconds later. That's fine. <laughs> Uh, but uh, I do want to say that uh, this is one of the most powerful presentations I've ever witnessed on any of at least my stuff. And I know a lot of other people's. Uh, but I do want to give a shout out to the, the project as well, which which has encompassed so much of our time these last few weeks. Uh, I've placed the links into the comment section for uh, CWRGM. I would love for all of you in the chat. Uh, whether you are on YouTube or Facebook, to go check out the site and to remember also that you can volunteer as a, a to transcribe these amazing documents from so many Mississippians whose voices need to be heard, uh, and, and and you can help do that. And that is one great way to volunteer to tell the story of one state and and think about what you can do in your own state as well with yeah. that. Yeah. Uh, Susanna, Susanna, next week we are continuing about historical memory, correct? Yes. Our guest next week is Dr. Ann Sarah Rubin, who's written a lot about memory in the Civil War, and we're going to be talking about this and some of the other documents as well. 
Um, I should let our viewers know, our listeners, I should say, and viewers, um, that our volunteers are so good. We're running out of documents at the moment. You guys are out transcribing us. But there's going to be some documents are going to be trickling in, and then we're going to get flooded with a bunch again starting in the summer. Mm -hmm. Um, But you know what? In the meantime, go visit your local uh, Civil War National Park Service site. Go support the folks out there like uh, Barney Scobie um, and, you know, who are just doing fantastic work and just educating the public. Absolutely. Absolutely. And me too. Yes. (laughs) Yes. Thank you all for being part of this panel tonight. Thank you. Thank you so Thank much you. for your time. Thank you, everyone. Thank you guys for, for having me. I You're really appreciate the invite. It's our pleasure. It was definitely our pleasure to have you on here, Barney. Thank you so much for your time and for that amazing presentation. It was outstanding. Uh, thank you, everyone, in the comments section whether you're on Facebook or YouTube, thank you so much for tuning in and for being a part of this. Remember that we will be back next week at the same time, continuing our thoughts on the historical memory uh, alongside this project. So please be safe, be well, take care of yourselves and keep reading. 